you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to the book of Daniel. Over the past several years, several parts of the Bible have been made into movies. Some have been big uh, blockbuster feature films like the old Cecil B. DeMille classic, The Ten Commandments, and the more recent uh, Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of Christ. But then there have been some lesser-known movies as well, ones that have either been direct-to-video release or ones that were made for television. I can remember in my early days of seminary, there was the, a spate of movies that came out about Jesus um, uh, made specifically for television. And let's be honest, if we've seen uh, many of these things, we know some are much better than others. But if there was ever a part of the Bible that should be made into a movie, that has the potential to be in some ways a Hollywood blockbuster, an entire series of films, it should be the book of Daniel. If you've read through Daniel, all of the 12 chapters, then you will know that as much as I like Lord of the Rings, it does not hold a candle to this book. I mean, it is amazing in its depiction, not just of some fantasy story, but of the real lives of God's people and the ways in which he was at work there. If you're not familiar with the book of Daniel, it begins with the story of Daniel and his friends being exiled in Babylon. You'll remember because of their sin, God's people, uh, the protection was removed. And so invading armies came and sacked the country and they carried off uh, the youngest and the best and the brightest to serve in the, the, the courts and the temples uh, and in the polit political areas of um, of their own nations. And so, uh, so for instance, you have uh, Daniel and his friends being deported to the, the nation of Babylon. In the first, first six chapters, you see these young men uh, being uh, basically having their identity erased as best the Babylonians could. They said, you will not eat the food you're used to anymore. You will not wear the clothes you're used to anymore. You will not worship the God that you used to anymore. You will not even go by the name you used to anymore. You are now Babylonians. And you see Daniel and his free, three friends saying, we don't think so. You can change our names. You can change our homeland. But we will be forever faithful to our God. And you see this is not an easy decision. In fact, it is one made in the face of death. Faced with sword, fiery furnace, and even dens of lions, they never turn their back on God, but remain steadfast and courageous in them. And in fact, God uses them, even in the midst of this exile, interpreting dreams and performing signs through them, that even the pagan nations in which they're in exile will know and see the power of the one true living God. In fact, Daniel is one of those rare people in the Bible that never has anything negative said about him. You know, most of the, one of the ways in which we know the Bible is real and is, is not just, um, you know, fairy tales is the fact that it reads like no other ancient book in the world and that it shows clearly even the most heroic of God's people just have feet of clay. They are human beings who are fallible and who sin. You have the great father of the faith, Abraham. And how many chapters does it take until we get to that pinnacle where he is willing to sacrifice his son, somehow believing God will raise him back from the dead? How many times does he sin and lose faith? And yet Daniel is one of only a handful of people where you read nothing negative about him at all. He is, as it were, a hero among heroes. He is always presented as a godly, faithful servant of the Lord. 
And in fact, given when he lived in the age that he was, it is very likely that as he grew up still in Israel, he would have actually heard the preaching of Jeremiah that we read about a few weeks ago, that he would have seen this prophet and his courage in the face of death, in the face of rejection and ridicule, and he would have been built up in his own faith, preparing him to be a prophet of the living God, even in exile. But then in chapter 7, it's almost like you turn the page and it's a completely different book. For while Daniel has been interpreting dreams sometimes of pagan kings, while you have these straightforward narrative accounts of his faithfulness, suddenly you turn to chapter 7 and what you have is Daniel's, as it were, journal. His recounting of the visions that God gave him of what he was doing. God is what God was doing both in Daniel's day, what he had done before Daniel's day, and what he would continue to do after Daniel's day in bringing about salvation for his people. And this is where the box office would go nuts with these things. You have wild and unbelievable things that Daniel sees. In fact, we will read, Daniel, uh, frankly, has his pants scared off of him at some points. I mean, he is just standing back saying, what in the world am I seeing? He says in the great Hebrew way, my color changed. What did we say? He turned white like a ghost. He just could not believe these wild cross-hybrid beasts. You know, I mean, have you seen the previews for Clash of the Titans? This is the kind of stuff that Daniel was seeing. Just these monstrosities waging war against great dragons, stars falling from the sky, and Daniel's mind is being blown. He's saying, what in the world does all this mean? And yet God comes and he tells Daniel, what these things mean. He tells them what these visions mean and how they are supposed to be an encouragement for his people, even in exile, that God has not forgotten them, that God has not somehow been toppled off his throne by false gods, that he still loves his people, that he is still preserving them even in the midst of this judgment, and that one day the fullness of his might and sovereignty over the nations will be revealed. Nevertheless, as we read Daniel chapters 9 and following, we have to be careful that we read them in the right way. Several months ago, if you remember in Sunday school, we looked at that different types of Bible literature require different ways in which they are to be read. You don't read Proverbs the same way you read a letter of Paul. And likewise, in just a few spots throughout the Bible, uh, in places like Ezekiel and here in Daniel and in the book of Revelation, you have something called, uh, the scholars call, apocalyptic literature. In other words, you have this kind of writing that uh, is, is frankly a little bizarre. Everything is, is filled with symbols and, and picturesque images that point to greater realities. And so if you try and just read it like the rest of the thing, uh, you're going to get pretty, some pretty bizarre ideas about what is going on. And so we have to understand that this is not just like any other story. This is not just filmic fiction, but rather this is uh, visions given to Daniel. And in the midst of all of this vivid imagery... Uh, God is wanting to point to deeper spiritual realities that will both educate and encourage His people in His ways. And so what we want to do is we seek to understand the entirety of Daniel. We want to look at chapter 7 and the vision that he has there, really a, a, a very much a transitionary uh, high point in the book, bringing together the first six chapters and the ones to follow. So I would encourage you to... Uh, follow along and to open your mind's eye and try to imagine all the things that Daniel himself uh, saw before his eyes in dreams and visions. 
In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings. Then I looked, then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it and had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, when ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked, then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this, so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four great kings who shall rise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell. The horn had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints." And prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break its pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into His hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and His dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom 
and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole earth, heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. This is the word of God. For the past several weeks, we have seen heavy messages that God sent through the prophets telling His people about impending judgment for sin. And now that judgment has happened. In the prophet Daniel, we see a shift in emphasis. Here, the weight of the book is not on the judgment that God's people deserve, but rather of God's provision for His people and His sovereign control over all things, even the very nations that invaded and deported the people of Israel back to their homelands. For those in exile, God was saying, I have not forgotten you. I am still king. As we seek to uh, unpack this chapter, We will not only see the themes of this chapter, we will also see the themes that dominate the book as a whole. And these themes were given to God's people in order to encourage them throughout exile to not lose heart, to not give up, but to continue to trust in the living God. We will see three things this morning. The first two are, again, themes, very specific theological truths that we need to understand and take hold of. The third theme is the implication. What do you do now that you know and believe and understand these first two foundational truths? So three things we will see this morning. The first thing is this. We need to see the reality of spiritual conflict through earthly kingdoms. We need to understand the reality of spiritual conflict through earthly kingdoms. In the early chapters of Daniel, uh, God gave him, again, the ability to interpret dreams of the great kings. But now he himself is given dreams, amazing visions. As you read this, wasn't it an amazing vision? Can you imagine waking up after that kind of dream? I mean, well, you know, you would probably sit in a stupor and, you know, call into work or something. And be like, I don't know what, what that was about, okay? And, and, and what does it mean is the question. Well, first of all, it's clear from what the angel says that these beasts represent kings and kingdoms. And the descriptions of the beasts are meant to tell us something about what those kingdoms were like. So as D.A. Carson explains, the lion combined with the eagle suggests dominion, speed, and strength. This is the kind of nation the lion represents, one that exercises authority, that has might and power and swiftness in battle. This brown Syrian bear that's mentioned may weigh up to 600 pounds and has a voracious appetite, all of which is envisioned here as being a part of the nation's power. It's pictured with with a big slab of the side of some other beast in its mouth, ribs hanging out as if this is what it is known for, vicious warfare. The leopard is known for its extraordinarily sudden, rapid attacks. It has four heads, all looking in four directions, seeking to be the predator and find its prey with wings, giving it the ability to move in any direction to attack over all of the earth. And yet the last beast, Daniel says, is terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. Furthermore, it's said to have ten horns. Horns is always a sign of power, authority, and dominion. It has 
five times the normal amount of horns an animal will have, showing the, the far-reaching dominion that this kingdom had. Now, most likely, this vision of these four beasts is about four actual kingdoms, that some of which Daniel went through, others of which were around when Jesus himself came on the scene. The Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, the Greek empire, and the Roman empire. And yet, you will notice that I think Daniel's vision points not just to four specific kingdoms, but to beyond those kingdoms. To, to that those four kingdoms would represent the kind of kingdoms that have been around and will continue to be around for all time. I mean, just th- th- think about it even like this as we begin. Aren't, aren't nations even today often symbolized by great beasts? Don't we think of the Russian bear? Don't we think of the Chinese dragon? The American eagle? It's not anything... Uh, particularly outdated to to view nations in this way. Likewise, Daniel says when he sees these beasts, you notice he says they are coming up out of the sea that has been stirred up by the four winds. The four winds obviously being us today, we would say the four corners of the earth from all over the world comes these winds that stir up these beasts. And they don't just come from particular areas, they come from the sea. And in the Bible, the sea is always pictured as symbolically representing chaos and confusion and wickedness. Who can tame the sea? It is violent with uh, sea creatures of all kinds there. And so I think what we have here are four specific kingdoms, and yet they are presented in such a way that they represent all kingdoms throughout history that oppose God and His people. So even when the angel answers Daniel's request for more information and explains what more about the fourth kingdom, the explanation is still vague. What does he say? The angel says, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times of the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. That's really not all that much more helpful in telling Daniel uh, exactly what he's seen. Nevertheless, the information we have... Uh, does line up historically with a fellow by the name of Antiochus IV. In fact, he's known as Antiochus Epiphanes because he so thought of himself to be great in splendor that he was to be worshipped as a god. Antiochus IV, glorious god, is what what that name means. And he is one of of several Roman rulers who eventually uh, sieged the people of Israel to, to take possession of Uh, of this country for himself about 150 years before Jesus was born. His intention was to completely wipe out and assimilate the Israelite people into the Roman Empire. And so he made it illegal for them to keep the Sabbath. He made it illegal for them to own bits of Scripture. He tried to kill the priest. And he did what was probably most unthinkable of all. He went into the temple itself, into the very Holy of Holies, and instead of offering the prescribed sacrifice, he slaughtered the epitome of uncleanness in all of Israel, a swine, a pig, on the altar to God. It was a devastating time for Israel. And yet, and yet, that description is still also vague enough 
that it need not just be Antiochus that Daniel is being told about, who will come and desecrate and seem to reign over God's people. For just as the Apostle John says later in his first letter, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have already come. So here there are many world leaders who oppose God's reign over them. And what we need to understand is what Daniel is shown in this vision and throughout the book, and that is simply this. Nations are not neutral before God. Political kingdoms, world powers are not neutral before God. Satan himself can stand behind nations and use their power and resources to rage against God and his people, sometimes in even viciously wicked ways. Now you think about our own country for a minute, our own nation. Think of the government offices. Think of the corporate structures. Think of the entertainment culture. Think about the educational environments of our own nation. They all stand in direct opposition to God. In any of those places of power and influence in our culture, if you stood up and said, I believe Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that He died for sins, and He came back out of the tomb, is in heaven now at the right hand of God, and rules and reigns over all things, what would happen? That's exactly it. You'd be laughed at. At the very least, you would be laughed at. You would be mocked. You would be derided. Perhaps you would lose jobs. Perhaps you would be passed over for promotion. Perhaps you would be ignored and marginalized. This nation is opposed to God. But that's just in this country. Read about countries like China. Read about regions like the Sudan. Nations like Saudi Arabia, Myanmar, North Korea, India. And there God is much more severely and directly challenged. They are people who would make that affirmation about Jesus Christ are openly persecuted, imprisoned, and even killed. Even today, the beastly nations of Daniel's vision are on the prowl, raging against God. As Christians, we have to understand this reality. We have to live knowing that physical opposition is simply reflective of greater spiritual opposition that comes against God and His people. In many ways, regardless of where you live in this world, if you are one of God's people, if you claim the name of Christ unashamedly, Satan has you as a marked person. He has you marked out as his target. To the degree that you are faithful to God, you may or may not be on his top ten list, his most wanted posters. And yet how cool would that be to know in hell there's a poster with your name on it right next to people like Daniel who they've got off because he's dead, and Paul, who they've got off because he's dead, thinking they've won. The question is, is that all the reality that we need to understand? And the answer is no. That is there. We must be aware of it. We must understand it. And yet we must also, secondly, understand this. We must understand the power of a sovereign Lord with an everlasting kingdom. We must understand the power of a sovereign Lord who has an everlasting kingdom. In the midst of this terrifying vision, Daniel says, As I looked, thrones were placed, 
And the Ancient of Days came and took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, his wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. In contrast to these wicked nations, Daniel sees the Lord himself. And notice how he's described in every way a juxtaposition to the other nations. First, he's called the Ancient of Days. Now, we've just seen nation, devouring nation, devouring nation, devouring nation, powers rising and falling. But here is one who is called Ancient among the kingdoms and among the nations. Here is a king who has always been there. Here is a king whose kingdom has endured all of these other changes, outlasting every other kingdom. God is not just a king on his throne. He is the king above all kings who reigns in justice and purity and holiness. The other nations are characterized by wickedness, but his clothing was white as snow. His hair, the head like pure wool, his throne like fiery flames, his wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came forth before him. Then we read about him being surrounded by thousands, thousands that served him, 10,000 times 10,000. Somebody needs to do the math on me for that, because I don't know, that's too big for me. The court sat in judgment, the books were opened. Ancient of days, you have this picture of, of these thrones being set out. And it's those that would even serve under the authority of the Ancient of Days, perhaps having their own spheres of authority under him. And yet he is the one who comes and takes his seat in this fiery throne of holiness and purity and judgment. And he begins to judge the other nations. The books are opened, as it were, and judgment begins to take place. And of course, it's here that unfortunately Hollywood would want to rewrite. We mentioned The Lord of the Rings earlier. One of the things that, that people would, would love about those movies were the fantastic battle scenes. Those of you that have watched those movies, you know what I'm talking about. You have you know, thousands of ten thousands of, of orcs and humans and dwarves and, and elves, and they're all coming together, and bows are, are shooting arrows, and, and battle axes and swords are swinging, and it's an intense fight and rain and mud and blood, and you're wondering, who will be become victorious? That's not what happens here, though, is it? What happens in verse 11? The most hideous beast of them all, the most vicious, vile beast that, that, that has Daniel quaking in his boots, the one that has trashed all other kingdoms, who has devoured everything else, anything that's left, he has stomped it into the ground, never to be remembered anymore. It has massive teeth, he says, like iron. And God just says, boom, and it's gone. Well, that, that's it? I mean, that's what we're saying in Hollywood, right? I mean, if the good guy just comes up and, you know, bam, that's it. You're kind of like, oh, you know, I was kind of expecting, you know, the big battle thing. But the vision Daniel has is, no, that's not the way it is with God. He simply speaks forth. He issues his judgment. And that kingdom is no more. It's like King Kong versus a gerbil. I mean, there's no contest. He just picks it up and it's gone. Likewise, with the Ancient of Days on his throne, Daniel is down here quivering in fear, this monstrous, this beast, and he doesn't know where to flee, and God just says, done! And it's consumed in fire, never to be heard of again. That's the point. That was the point of Psalm 2 that we read this morning. 
despite the raging terror of these wicked nations coming against God. It is God alone who survives. It is God alone who remains on His throne, reigning over all things in an everlasting kingdom. He alone is the Ancient of Days. Then notice what else Daniel sees. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That phrase, son of man, is just a a Hebrew way of saying one who looked like a human being. Well, all the other nations and kingdoms are beastly and inhuman. Here God hands the reins of power into the hands of a human being. Who in the world could the Son of Man be? Daniel says he comes with the clouds of heaven, the very imagery of the glory of heaven itself. Here is a man who somehow comes from heaven, is associated with heavenly things, and he reigns not just over God's people Israel. He is not just like David or or Saul or the Davidic uh, kings that come after his anointed on the throne in Jerusalem. No, here is one who has given authority over all nations. All peoples everywhere are part of his everlasting dominion. It will all come to serve him. The angels of days gives him dominion that is an everlasting dominion. Now just think about that for a minute, about how comforting and encouraging this kind of vision would have been for Daniel. Here he is in exile for maybe 50, 60 years at this point. He's lived virtually his entire adult life in Babylon, taken when he was probably 16 or 17 from his parents who maybe even were killed in front of his eyes. He's lived in the midst of wickedness. He's lived scraping along, getting little bits of information from the prophets and and people that still resided in Israel. He's still seeking to pray and to serve God. And yet he's still in Babylon and Israel is in ruins. And here he gets this vision. He gets this vision of the Ancient of Days having this man presented before him The Ancient of Days approves of this man so that he hands over the totality of the reign of all things into his hand. And this Son of Man goes forth and defeats every rebel power that would stand against God or his people. How comforting would that be to Daniel? And you can imagine him saying, who is this man? Who is this guy? Is is he a prophet? Is he a king? Who is he? And what Daniel could not see clearly we do see clearly. For the New Testament, we come and we see this Son of Man is none other than God's own Son, Jesus Christ. He is the one who comes from the clouds in the full glory of His deity, taking on the full flesh of humanity. He is the one who dies for His people and yet on the cross puts to shame every rebel power. He is the one who rises again to life and is exalted as the Lord of all things, having now a kingdom that will never end and will never pass away. Even now as God's people, we cannot let spiritual opposition, we cannot let the things that we experience cause us to forget who is the real king, who has the real dominion and authority, whose kingdom is everlasting. It doesn't matter what what Kim Jong-il does. It doesn't matter what Putin does. It doesn't matter what our president does or who sits in the Oval Office. 
the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who has an everlasting kingdom. And even though they seek to do harm to God's people, God is not blind. God is not deaf. God is not slack. But he will one day cause every rebel power to bow the knee before him. In the next couple days, you have been challenged to go well beyond your comfort level. As we seek to invite 2,500 homes to come here that we can make disciples. Some of you think it'll never work. Some of you think, I don't want to change what I like to do on Sundays. Some of you don't know what to think about going door to door in neighborhoods that aren't all that nice and inviting them to come to our church. But you need to understand that with the most basic command Christ gives his disciples, the most fundamental task that we have, and in some ways the most difficult task, go and make disciples of all nations, Christ also gives this promise. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the question we have to ask ourselves is this. When we understand that there are spiritual forces at work behind earthly kingdoms, when we understand that God alone has the everlasting kingdom, how do we, li how do we live in light of these realities? How do we live today in light of this truth? Daniel sets the example for us. This is the third theme. This is our implication, application for the morning. That is simply this. Like Daniel, we must see the call to faithful living in light of a victorious future. We must see the call to faithful living in the light of a victorious future. Look at the uh, first verse of chapter 7 there. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Sometimes the Bible does not present things in chronological order, but when it doesn't, it always tells you it doesn't and gives you an indicator like this. What this means is you read the first six chapters is that this does not just come at the end of Daniel's life. These visions have been scattered all throughout his life. And what he is telling us here is that this vision comes to him sometime between chapters 4 and 5 in the book of Daniel. Now, what does he say at the very last verse? He has this amazing vision. He sees these great truths. And he says this, here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. He sees this vision. It scares him, it unsettles him, and yet he keeps it in his heart. That is to say, he doesn't ignore it, he doesn't try and forget it, he meditates on it, and he thinks about it, and he says, what should I do with this vision that God has given me? He has this vision, he thinks about it, and then you have chapter 5 of Daniel. Do you know what happens in chapter 5 of Daniel? You have a king of Babylon in chapter 4 that God has humbled. He has caused him to go stark, raving, insane. And through that experience, he comes to acknowledge the God of Israel is the one true God. But now in chapter 5, you have his son, Belshazzar. And Belshazzar is not a particularly humble man. He has not learned the lessons of his father. And in his pride and arrogance, 
He remembers that when his father sat in Jerusalem, he literally emptied out the temple of the living God with all of its gold and silver. And so in the midst of a party, he tells one of his servants, hey, hey, come here. Remember that gold and silver we have lying around in the back room that we took from the temple in Israel? Bring that out so that we can drink our wine out of those things. Bring enough for my wives and my concubines and all my servants. And so his servants do what they're told and the things that had at one time been purified and blessed and set aside for the worship of God only are now brought in. So a pagan, sinful king can swill down his wine out of them. And in the midst of that prideful offense, we don't know how big it is. We don't know if it was the size of a regular human hand. But out of thin air, attached to nothing, comes this finger and begins to inscribe Hebrew words into the plaster wall of the king's dining room. Needless to say, he's a bit frightened by that. In fact, he says, I, I, you know, I, I imagine it, it could even have been like right over his head as the representative of this pagan people. And they're like, dude, what is that? And he's like, Poof. and this finger is blazing these words on the wall and he says look get every astrologer get every wise man get every woman who throws chicken bones out of a bag i want to know what this means what is going on here and nobody knows until some lady says i think there's a guy named daniel who interpreted dreams of another king and so they bring daniel out and daniel reads the writing and god gives him immediately a knowledge of knowing this is what this message means for belshazzar and he knows it's not good news. And you have the choice, don't you? you know, the false prophets of old would tell the king whatever they wanted because they knew it would mean long life, lots of food, and nice clothes. And Daniel has the choice to either tell the truth to the king and possibly have his head lopped off right there in front of him or to lie, to fudge it, to tweak the numbers, to spin it in a way that makes the king feel good about himself so that he can keep his life. What will he do? Daniel obeys God. He has faith in the ancient of days. And so he tells the king, you have been weighed by God and have been found wanting. You have not been humbled like your father, and in your pride, your days are now through. Your kingdom will be torn from your hand and divided among your enemies. Good night, O king. And that very night, in fact, the king dies, and the prophecy comes true. Then you have chapter 6. Now Daniel's an old man. He is 70 years old, and now there is a new king, King Darius, a new empire. And Daniel, because of his wisdom and his godliness, has been made a high official in the court. And yet Darius has been provoked to, to pass an edict that says everyone in the kingdom must worship him and him alone for 30 days or be thrown into a lion's den. So what is Daniel to do? He worships the ancient of days. He worships the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he's an old man. He's 70. You're thinking, I mean, maybe. You've got, you know, David fighting off one lion. In his teenage years, when he's healthy and strong and strapping and has the Spirit of the Lord upon him, do you really think a 70-year-old man thrown into a den of angry lions stands a chance? He knows it's certain death. So what is he going to do? Is he going to say, well, God knows what's in my heart. And so even if I'm bowing down to Darius, he knows I still love him. 
Well, Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. And even though Daniel didn't have that, I think he understood the sentiment. So Daniel does what he has done all apparently every day of his life, what those who conspired to have the king issue this edict knew so that Daniel could be killed. He goes up to his room that faces towards Jerusalem and he opens the window and he begins to pray to the God of Israel. And even though Darius loves Daniel and sees him as a wise counselor, a great and godly man, he says, this is the edict that I have issued. You must be thrown into the lion's den. That morning they come early, Darius, it says, comes, and he throws open the, the roof of the pit and calls down, hopefully, Daniel, to which he hears the steady but old voice of a 70-year-old man say, O king, live forever. Your servant is still here, preserved by the hand of the Most High God. How did he have the courage to give a king who may slay him in his presence a word of defeat from God? How did he have the courage when he knew immediately what was going to happen to him? Lions did. How did he have the courage to say, whatever, dude, throw me the lions in if you want. But I have to obey and worship only one God, the one true living God. It's simply this. He knew. He knew that behind, that behind the earthly kingdoms lay spiritual forces that at work. But he also knew that stronger than any of those other spiritual forces was the ancient of days. The one true and living God. And it didn't matter how hard those raging nations would pounce and destroy and seek to tear apart God's people. One day, all of those kingdoms would come to an end and there would be only one who remained. This coming son of man to whom was given an everlasting kingdom among all the nations of the world. And it was with that confidence that Daniel could remain faithful to the end even with the real threat of death. Now, loved ones, we will likely never face a fiery furnace, the sword of a king, or a lion's den. But every day, we face a decision, perhaps multiple times in the day. Will we bow to the spiritual forces of darkness, fearing the world's opinions, the world's threats, loving the world's values? Will we more faithfully and fearfully serve our neighbors and our friends and our own sinful hearts? Or will we remember passages like this one that show us there is a higher throne? Will we remember the ancient of days exercising judgment on all nations? Will we remember Jesus, the Son of Man, who died on the cross to bear our guilt and shame for sins? Jesus, who rose again in glory to be given the entire universe? over which to reign in an everlasting dominion? Will we walk around ignorant of the spiritual forces at war around us, both in the most important and the most mundane actions in life? Or like Daniel, with confidence and joy, will we faithfully serve our king regardless of the circumstances, remembering that he will forever be with us as the king above all kings and the Lord above all lords, even to the end of the age. Loved ones, I challenge you this morning, through faith in God, dare to be like Daniel. Let's pray.